Uh, If you would, uh, join me in opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Uh, Before we uh, read that, I'll just kind of bring us up to speed in terms of where we are. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3. And in that uh, episode, we saw Peter and John, by the power of the name of Jesus, heal a man who was born uh, lame. His legs did not work. And uh, they give him what they have. They give him Jesus, and through the power of Jesus, uh, he is healed immediately, miraculously. That uh, sign, that miracle, then is followed by a sermon in which Peter proclaims the name of Jesus, saying that Jesus is the one who has healed uh, this man whom everybody there saw and were witness to. Uh, As we look at chapter 4, chapter 4 follows that episode now. You have a reaction from the authorities in Jerusalem to both the teaching of Peter and John as well as the miracle that they had performed in the power of Christ in healing this man who had been born unable to walk. Uh, And so that's where we are this morning. If you're able, would you join me in standing as we read from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power? Or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, you have told us that as you send rain and snow from the heavens to water and nourish the ground, bring forth fruit, so also your word given to us will not return void, but will accomplish all that you intend it to do. So we pray that you would do that among us today. We pray that your word would accomplish your purposes in our lives, that you would have your way with us. Humble us before you, encourage our hearts and our faith to see Jesus, to trust him more, to love him, and deepen our faith in your promises that we might be faithful witnesses to your good news. We pray all of this uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Martin and Gracia Burnham. Those might be names familiar to you. When I first started coming here as a college student, we were praying for Martin and Gracia Burnham, as well as others who were part of their New Tribes missions team, who had been working in the Philippines. And after about 17 years of laboring in the Philippines, uh, Martin and Gracia, this husband and wife, along with their team and many others, had been captured by uh, Muslim terrorists working in the Philippines. Uh, We prayed for them uh, throughout their captivity. Uh, This was about 22 years ago, 21 years ago, rather. In the midst of their service to Jesus, uh, they were met with an intense and threatening opposition. While celebrating their wedding anniversary, Martin and Gracia, along with these others, were taken captive by this group. They were held hostage for uh, more than a year, about 13, 14 months or so, uh, by this group, many of those months being spent in the jungle in the Philippines, uh, living on very little, uh, coming close to starvation, both the group that had kidnapped them as well as their hostages. Eventually, in June of 2002, the Philippine army came in, was able to overtake this group who had taken uh, Martin and Gracia captive. But in the midst of that rescue mission, Martin was killed and Gracia survived. We could multiply stories like that throughout Christian history. You could multiply stories of missionaries, stories of faithful Christians being opposed and oppressed for the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to look too far back, even looking uh, the week before last at Nigerian Christians who had gathered to worship, uh, being attacked in the midst of that and and slaughtered there within their church service uh, by those who would oppose them. The gospel faces opposition. This has always been the case. This is part of the way God is at work in the world. The gospel faces opposition, and yet at the same time, as God's word goes forth, there's pushback, there's opposition, there's persecution to those who claim the name of Christ. The gospel also grows and and brings people to the Father through the Son as God's people faithfully proclaim and bear witness to the good news that Jesus died and rose again for sinners. The gospel goes forth, it faces opposition, while at the same time it goes forth in growing. And what I want to show you today, what I want us to see today, is this pattern of opposition and growth going hand in hand, happening at the same time in the history of the church, as well as encouraging us to find confidence in the promises of Jesus, that he will give us courage, that he will give us words to faithfully witness to him at all times, but especially in the face of opposition. And so we see in this story, this part of the history of God's church, that the proclamation of the gospel is both opposed and it goes forth. Look with me, if you will, at verses 1 through 4. Peter and John have healed the lame man. Peter has preached this sermon. And now there's gathering of Jewish authorities who are bringing Opposition, And we see what happens when the message of the gospel pushes against, if you will, the powers that be, the rulers and authorities of the age. There is opposition. 
Notice the beginning of chapter 4. As they're speaking, it's in the midst of Peter's sermon, they're cut off. And the people uh, gathered there see the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees come up to them. And they're disturbed. They're bothered by Peter's message. He's proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which is why they're so sad, you see. Yeah, okay, some of you got that. Uh, They certainly didn't like the message. It didn't agree with their theological uh, commitments. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead or angels and other things. They were kind of the uh, first century modernists, if you will. They rejected the supernatural things of the Bible. But they come up and they're bothered. Uh, This is kind of like police showing up at a public disturbance. They're bothered by what's going on. They're bothered that these seemingly uneducated Galileans are, are teaching in an authoritative way. Does that sound familiar to you? These same groups reacted against Jesus in that way as he taught with authority and the people gathered around Jesus. Here you have Jesus' apostles doing the same thing. And they're bothered that they are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus who died has been raised as and shown to be the appointed Messiah. So they arrest them. They put them in jail overnight. It's already evening, so there's not time to Uh, bring them to trial that evening. So they put them in jail for the night, perhaps hoping that they will uh, sober up, if you will, by the next morning. Uh, And you notice this opposition that has come to them as a result of their faithfully proclaiming Christ. The church should not be surprised at the opposition that it receives when it faithfully proclaims the good news of Jesus. Consider the fact that Jesus himself received this same opposition. The most loving, gracious, gentle, and lowly person to have ever walked the earth faced fierce opposition, his enemies even claiming that he was possessed by a demon as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom and called people to faith and repentance. Jesus was opposed. Jesus was hated. Jesus was eventually put to death. And he tells us that we should not expect anything different as his church. The world hated him. The world will hate those who love him and who follow him. Peter himself tells us in his first letter that we ought not to be surprised at the fiery trials we face as followers of Jesus. But then he urges us, he says, but, but make sure that your suffering is not connected to some sin of your own. Don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a criminal, as some sort of thief or slanderer. But if you suffer for the name of Christ, then count that as an honor and a point of glory to God when you suffer for the name of Jesus. The church should not be surprised at opposition when we receive it for faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And yet we are often shocked. We are often caught completely off guard by any opposition to the Christian uh, message. And perhaps we're becoming more and more comfortable with that opposition. Church in America has has not yet grappled with this reality uh, that there are those who fiercely oppose the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We're, We're becoming more and more surprised, perhaps, when a commitment to biblical faith is viewed as hateful, uh, unloving, perhaps even a criminal act. We view it as a violation of personal rights 
when the church is opposed on account of its faith. Uh, But it's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? We live in kind of a complex situation here in the United States. We live in a context where we have wonderful good laws that protect our liberties, our liberties to believe what we desire to believe, our, our liberties to worship God according to our conscience, not to be forced to worship God in a way that goes against our conscience, held captive by God's word. We enjoy wonderful liberties with regard to religious belief, with regard to Christian faith. That's good. Uh, We should guard that for everyone, regardless of what they believe. No one should be compelled to believe something against their conscience. At the same time, we need to recognize that those liberties, in many ways, are an exception. It's an anomaly. It's a blip on the timeline of human history. It's not the norm. And in the case of Christians, Jesus tells us that it's not what we should expect forever. It's not what we should always learn to be comfortable with and to expect as we follow Jesus. So that whether there's opposition in terms of government, state opposition to the Christian faith, or whether it's simply personal in nature, one to another, uh, not coming from some sort of state or national entity, there will always be opposition to the gospel. And this passage reminds us that we should be prepared for that, uh, that we should not be surprised by it, and that we should prepare ourselves for what may come our way. Many of you will remember Andrew Brunson, uh, a Presbyterian ministry, a minister who was, uh, he and his wife were missionaries in Turkey, uh, and, and not too recently, in the last five years or so, uh, he and his wife were arrested by the Turkish authorities. His wife, Nadine, was released, and Andrew Brunson was held uh, in prison in Turkey and, and um, charged with or accused of being a spy and other things, kind of an enemy of the state, if you will, which none of which was true. And as he was in prison, he, uh, he's recently said in different articles that he realized that he, he thought he was a tough Christian. And, and Turkey's not an easy place to do ministry, I'm sure. So I think all of us would say, yeah, he's, he's a tough Christian, going to a hard place and, and trying to minister the gospel there. And yet he, as he uh, recalls his time in prison there, being persecuted for his faith, he recognizes that he was not prepared for that persecution. As much as he might have felt that he was, uh, he talks about feeling the absence of God uh, in, in the prison cell, wondering why God was leaving him there, wondering why it was taking so long, wondering uh, if God was still present with him. Uh, the Lord broke him down in that sense and, of course, restored him as he was not only released from prison but also saw God's hand at work in it. And Andrew Brunson, in reflecting upon that, Uh, reminds us and encourages us that we need to be preparing ourselves as the Church of Jesus Christ to face that same type of opposition. And he contends that we're not at all ready for it. We need to see, he says, that fundamentally at the heart of the conflicts we see in the world and perhaps even in our own nation uh, is not fundamentally a political division but a spiritual division, not necessarily identifying one party or another with spiritual commitment, but seeing beyond all of that, rather, that there are those who are following Christ, those who are not, 
And, and Jesus divides the world in that way, that there is spiritual opposition at work. And yet, at the same time, Jesus tells us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the gospel, against the kingdom of God. And so you see, even in Acts, as they are opposed, there's growth. Notice verse 4. Peter and John are carted off to prison by the temple authorities in verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of them came to be about 5,000. It's probably cumulative since Peter's first sermon has been building up, but there were some there already, even as the church is being opposed, God is using the preached message of the gospel to bring people to himself. This is the pattern. There's opposition. We need to be prepared for that. But at the same time, there's growth as we faithfully proclaim the gospel and call people to trust in Jesus for salvation. There is opposition and growth. And even as we see the gospel going forth, we see in Peter's sermon Christ's faithful promise to give words and confidence for us to be faithful witnesses to his exclusive claims, even in the face of opposition. Notice verses 5 and following. They bring them out of prison. They gather. You have kind of the Jewish court, the um, high priest, the rulers, the elders, the scribes. They're all gathered. This is what's called the Sanhedrin. This was the, the author- same authorities that brought Jesus to trial, handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. Here you have Peter and John. What an irony. Uh, They thought by putting Jesus to death, they would put an end to this, and it's just continued on here in Jesus' followers. Peter and John are placed in the center. It's kind of a a horseshoe-type room, so you have all these men sitting around the horseshoe, and Peter and John in an intimidating scenario. And these men begin to throw questions at them. By what power, in whose name, do you do these things? What gives you the right to claim these things about Jesus and to act in this way. And notice that Luke tells us in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak to them. Jesus promised, long before any of this happened, he promised his disciples two things. Well, he promised them lots of things, but two things in particular. He promised them you're going to be brought before kings, rulers, and authorities on account of my name. If you follow me, you're going to get brought before those who can do harm to you. And you'll be given an opportunity to give a testimony. And he, so he promised them that. There's going to be opposition. But he also promised them that in that moment, he would provide courage and words. He would provide courage and words. You may remember in the passage we suggested for meditative scripture that's one of those places where jesus promises this to his disciples Uh, he says you're going to be brought before these rulers and authorities but go ahead he says go ahead and decide beforehand that you will not prepare a defense in advance because when that time comes i will give you the words that you need and then in another place he says don't worry about that moment what you will say the holy spirit himself will give you the words that you need. And here Peter is in that moment that Jesus promised would come, and he receives that very promise that Christ gave him. The Holy Spirit fills Peter for this task of boldness, of having courage not to back down, 
and having words to speak in an intimidating situation. This is the moment. This is the hinge opportunity. What will God's people do in the face of this first opposition in the book of Acts to their witness? You know, Peter's record is not so great. Uh, He has cowardly run away from far less dangerous situations. People asking him, did you, were you with Jesus? No, 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 no. Were you with Jesus? No, 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 no. And then the, my favorite, the teenage girl who says, were you with Jesus? And he curses her and leaves, denies Jesus three times. Peter's record is not so great here, but the Holy Spirit in this moment has given him courage and given him words to testify And not just to testify in general, but to testify to the greatest point of contention, the exclusive claims of Jesus, that there is no other way outside of the name of Christ for there to be salvation for anyone. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter for this specific task. The helper helps him. Peter is not worried about what he will say or what he will do. He is filled with courage and speaks out of the fullness of what the Holy Spirit has given him. He claims that it was Christ who healed the man, not us, Jesus. He reminds them, again, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. You rejected him, but God has made him in his resurrection the chief cornerstone the foundation stone upon which the community of God's people, God's restored Israel, the church upon which uh, the church will be built. In many ways, Peter had been preparing for this moment throughout his entire uh, life with Jesus, throughout that entire time of walking with Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he did not realize it. And so in some ways, I think we have to maybe make some distinctions here. When Jesus says, decide beforehand that you're not going to prepare defense, he does not mean don't be prepared for that day. What he means is don't worry about what you're going to say. Peter had been preparing. He knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He knew what had happened. He had seen Jesus risen from the dead. He understood how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. And he was ready. He was prepared in that sense, and yet the Holy Spirit used all of that preparation for that moment. It's kind of like, if you'll allow this as an illustration, it's kind of like the first and greatest Karate Kid movie. You remember the scene or the storyline? Uh, Ralph Macchio's character, what's his name? Daniel, thank you. Sorry, I should have known that. Yeah. Uh, Daniel. Ralph Macchio's character moves to town with his mom. He doesn't quite fit in, and uh, he meets Mr. Miyagi, uh, this, this war veteran from Japan who's now settled there in California. And he wants to learn karate. He wants to learn how to defend himself. He's getting beat up. He's getting bullied by these, these guys at the school. Uh, Johnny, one of the villains. Uh, I remember that name. And so he goes to Mr. Miyagi to receive this, you know, he wants to know, how, how do I defend myself? How do I, you know, beat these guys up when they come at me? You remember what Mr. Miyagi does to him? He says, here's a paintbrush, go paint my fence. Paints the fence. And he comes back, he's like, all right, I painted the fence, what next? Uh, go wax my car, wax on, wax off, okay, good. Making sure we still have that cultural cachet from the karate kid. 
He does all of these menial tasks, and he's so frustrated. Why aren't you teaching me? Why aren't you preparing me for when these guys come at me again? And then that wonderful scene where he confronts Mr. Miyagi about his neglect of him as a student. Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches, and Daniel's waxing on, he's waxing off, he's painting up, he's painting down. All of a sudden, he realizes he's prepared. And he didn't even realize that that's what had been going on until he needed it. Peter had been preparing for this moment of opposition, of of threat, of oppression and persecution of the Christian faith. And he didn't even know it, but he knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit gave him what he needed to testify. Christ will give you courage. He will give you words to testify of his grace, especially in the face of opposition. Because, uh, Andrew Brunson says, persecution is unlike any other affliction. All you have to do is compromise, and the pressure will let up. It's not the same with sickness and other afflictions. But if somebody's pressing in on you, because you are claiming Christ and trying to follow him and be faithful to what the Bible says, then, hey, if you don't like it and it's too much, all you've got to do is budge a little. And Peter didn't do that. He, He didn't try to get out from the opposition. He remained faithful, and the Holy Spirit gave him the ability to do that. He will do the same for you, for us, as his people, as we seek to remain faithful to Christ. There are many areas of the Christian faith that conflict with the world. Human sexuality, ethics in general, that there is a right and there is a wrong, uh, that there are absolute truths, things that are not determined by us or how we feel about them, but are objective and outside of us, never changing regardless of what we think or how much we understand. God being the creator and and the world and everything in it, not being the uh, fateful result of millions of accidents over billions of years, but God being the one who designed and created all things out of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power. There's one area that will always divide, the exclusive claims of Jesus as the only way of salvation. And that's where Peter lands. Verse 12, there is, you rejected him, God raised him from the dead. He's the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. This is an unexpected claim. God, rather it's not an unexpected claim, but it's, a, it's, it's an unexpected way in which God saves. God saves us in a way, he's at work restoring the, the world and his people in a way that is often unexpected and that is certainly exclusive exclusive it's unexpected because when you look at jesus he's the name he's the one jesus is despised he's killed he's buried in a borrowed tomb and yet his suffering and death is the way of life it's unexpected it's topsy-turvy it's not what we think it ought to be Just like the builders tossing away a stone only for that stone to be brought back in as the most important stone in the building, Jesus is tossed aside, treated as uh, nothing, and yet he is the, the name in which we find salvation. 
Jesus' suffering is the power of God for salvation because he is a righteous, innocent sufferer who stands in our place. Why is he the only name under heaven uh, by which we must be saved? Because he's the only righteous one who has given himself in the place of the unrighteous and who has been raised from the dead as evidence, divine testimony, that his death is enough and that his death is sufficient and that his death is exclusive in terms of forgiveness and salvation. There is no other name because only Jesus has died and risen from the dead. As we face opposition, as we see the gospel going forth, uh, may we hold fast to those claims of Jesus and not budge, not compromise, because there is no other way uh, for salvation. How does this apply to us today? Uh, two, two ways. If you're a non-believer, have you considered the claims of Christ? Have you wrestled with these claims that Jesus is the only way? And at the same time understood that part of what that means is that all we need is in him. He's the only way. It's exclusive, but it's absolutely inclusive And in that if you come to Jesus... You have all that you need for salvation. You have righteousness that you don't have in yourself to stand before God accepted because it's the righteousness of Christ. You have forgiveness because Jesus has paid the debt in our place on the cross, and that debt has been fully paid and accepted by his resurrection, as evidenced by his resurrection. All that we need is in Jesus, and he will never let you go. It's exclusive. If you're outside of him, you do not have salvation. It's inclusive. If you're in him, you have all that you need, and all of God's promises are for you. Have you considered the claims of Christ? Are you writing them off? Grapple with the claims of Jesus and see how the Lord works. If you're a believer, then we should take heed to not only the example from Acts 4, but also the encouragement of those who have suffered for the sake of Jesus. May we prepare ourselves as best we can for the opposition that we will face for faithfully following and proclaiming Jesus. How do we prepare? By knowing Jesus, by walking with him, by trusting in his promises, by growing in our knowledge and understanding of who he is, knowing what the Bible says and knowing what you believe and why, and also praying. Praying for churches who are suffering, who are experiencing danger at their doorstep in the midst of worship danger in other ways and threats, praying for those churches because we are one body with them and praying also for ourselves that we would be prepared and not uh, lack courage in that moment. Recently, uh, Gracia Burnham marked the 20th anniversary of her release from captivity and she has had a ministry of going around and encouraging churches, Christians, um, to be faithful, to see God at work uh, in their lives. And she recently told this story on the uh, World and Everything in It podcast, which I would commend to you if you're into that, that type of thing. She said that she, uh, in the last few years, found out that some of the men who had held her and her husband and others captive, who'd been part of this Islamic terrorist group, uh, some of those men who had been imprisoned in Philippine uh, prisons had received some materials in their own language 
from the very missions group that Martin and Gracia Burnham labored with, New Tribes Mission. This, this material was kind of um, almost graphic novels in a sense, if you know what I mean. Not quite comic books, but a little bit in between those and, and books. But they were stories telling about Jesus, uh, telling the story of Jesus. And some of the men who had held her and her husband and others captive have gotten these books and were converted through them. One of whom was an extremely violent man who had countless numbers of murders under his belt uh, as a member of this group, gloriously converted by the Lord through the materials provided by the missions group that Martin and Gracia Burnham belonged to, whom they had kidnapped. And reflecting on this, she says this, God can do anything, can't he? And it's not over till it's over. And I think that God has let me be a small part of what's happening there in the prison just to encourage my heart because he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations, not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work? And God's work is good. It's always good. Would you pray with